170 with my guest Damian Mason. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by Dawson Tire and Wheel, the premier ag tire and wheel provider in North America, helping people grow. Well, Damian, how you doing, buddy? I'm very well. Thank you for having me on once again to the Moving Iron Podcast. That's it's always my pleasure to have you on, man. So, Damian, before we get too far down the road, let's do this. You are a you are a uh, an electric figure on the. Uh, on the old social media out there, you, you tend to poke the bear a few times to get people fired up. So if people want to go enjoy some some back and forth, where's the best place for them to see you at on social media? Damian Mason Speaker on Instagram, Damian Mason Professional Speaker on Facebook, at Damian P. Mason on Twitter, and then just Damian Mason on LinkedIn. Got to be honest, I, uh, I'm cutting back on any of my engagement on Twitter because, uh, as you know, it can be a toxic place where people then like to gang up on you with fake names and then try and ridicule you. But yeah, I put out there commentary about the business of agriculture. You know, I've discovered there are a few people in our racket that are always just putting out we work hard. Agriculture, you know, if you if you if you ate today, thank a farmer. I'm like, okay, you know, that that's getting to where it's like uh, enough of the rah rah stuff. So sometimes you said poke the bear. I sometimes point out things that uh, agriculture needs to hear. Sometimes they don't want to hear, and sometimes, obviously, I do give pride and, and 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 encouragement as well as accolades where it's where it's due. A uh, point that you and I uh, have talked about is sometimes people in our industry. Uh, get a little bit overzealous on this whole thing about, like I said, thank a farmer. And one of the things I've pointed out repeatedly is this is a business. This is your business, my business. You sell machinery. Uh, I sell books, speeches, commentary, uh, and a few other things with my business. So I think it's important to always understand that this is a business. And uh, yeah, I, I put stuff out there. Um, but you know, every day I'm, I'm, uh, that's my job. I'm an agriculturalist. I'm a commentator and, uh, and, and a former ag economist. <laughs> Right, right on. Comedian too, right. So Damon does. Damon does have quite a bit of, of stuff out there. Go check his website out, and that's at is at uh, demiemason dot com. Correct. Damian Mason with an I A N D A M I A N Damian Mason dot com. Yeah, and there's yep. tons of videos. Go on YouTube and look up me, and you can see all sorts of videos that about life, business, and uh, and and the pursuit of agriculture. Right on. Well, I've, I've hired Damien myself to to speak at the Moving Iron Summit that I put on every year, and he's a great speaker. So anybody out there looking for a, a entertaining, uh, very educational speech uh, to get thrown down at your group, Damien's a great guy to hire. So go out there and uh, check his website out and see some of his past speeches, and there's there's plenty of great content there. So the reason I have Damien on the day, he was kind enough to send me a book and. I don't get too many people send me books, but Damien sent me both of his books he's had so far. And this latest book he has out is called Food Fear, How Fear is Ruining Your Dinner and Why You Should Celebrate Eating. And I, uh, full disclosure, I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I've, I've read enough to realize it's a, it's a quality, quality piece of literary art here, Damien. And I uh, guess uh, let's, uh, let's just start like this. What's the motivations behind uh, this book and, and why did you want to write something like this? 
Well, it's, uh, there's multiple levels of it. First off, it is my business. You know, as you said, uh, for 25, I'm in my 26th year now of going around at corporate events. My job is to make corporate events successful. You bring in 120 people to your uh, Moving Iron Summit, and you've got to put something on stage that is of value. So I've always been a person that my job was to get on stage and deliver value. In 1994, when I started out, I was a political comedian, so I made events successful by being comedically funny about the current events. Uh, that morphed into me being an agricultural guy who's funny. And now, increasingly, I'm a food and agriculture business guy. I mean, I do deliver my stuff in a funny way because of the comedy background. But um, definitely uh, a big part of it is being, uh, being able to comment on things. You and I both know that there's a tremendous amount of misinformation. Now, we do a thing in our business where we say, we've got to educate the consumer. And you've heard this at every ag function you've been to. Hey, you know what? We got educate the consumer. We're the only industry that believes that all of our issues will be resolved if we educate the consumer. First off, it's kind of arrogant to say that. Um, that they, that they're just they're just and they are agriculturally ignorant. But also, why would we think that they care? <laughs> you know, right. uh, yeah. Ford Motor Company doesn't say, "Well, let's just educate our consumers about why we uh, do this in our manufacturing facility." You don't care. You hop in your Ford F-150. You don't care why Ford does what they do in their manufacturing facility. But we want to tell them why we do what we do over here uh, on the farm. There's another part of it. We think that it matters. Um, you know what matters? What matters is that the consumer has money and that they'll pay a premium for stuff that we produce. Um, and the, uh, the main thing is that we give them uh, opportunity to do that and to keep, uh, keep our business moving forward. So, I don't think that we need to be educating the consumer. I think we need to um, really, more importantly, continue to put stuff out there that benefits us in the right way. My book, Food Fear, is written for both consumers and us. So there is a certain amount of information that the consumer can say, oh, now I understand why agriculture is important to the United States economy, because we are, after all, 25% of the global economy right here in the United States. And that is all predicated on, based on the fact that agriculture was one of our very first things. We made it so productive, so amazingly good that now we could go and invent Google. So I talk about that in Food Fear. So it's not really so much as we're going to teach agriculture to the consumer. It's more about what the big picture is. I'm not going to tell you necessarily uh, you know, how we cut needle teeth out of pigs. <laughs> I'm probably going to tell you why agriculture matters. So it's written for farmers. It's written for ag professionals. It's also written for our consumers. So when you said, what was your goal? It was to put out real information with commentary. For instance, when I go and compare GMO technology and glyphosate to DDT, that's going to shake some people up. But there's some real comparisons to be made. DDT, if you're older like you and me, you even know what that is. The younger folks listening to this podcast don't even know what DDT is. And I can tell you that DDT was banned by the EPA not because it was the worst god-awful chemical that was putting, uh, you know, killing people, but because it was a political movement, much like the movement against glyphosate or the movement against GMOs. Um, so that's what we go in this book is to kind of clarify a lot of things and realities of the business of food and agriculture. Food has been politicized, weaponized, bastardized by uh, people for years and years. In the last 100 years, for the first time ever, We've had surpluses. You know, I point that out, and I think you read that already because you're about through the first one-third of the book. For 10,000 years of agricultural existence, food was in scarce supply. Scarcity defined 
the entirety of food was, you know, like there's not enough of it. In the last 100 years, because of amazing innovation, because people like you selling fantastic machinery and the seed companies, chemical companies, and, and people like Norman Borlaug, we've made it so that we have surpluses. So that's what we talk about. Yeah, so, I, you know, as I read, reading through this, I think, to me, the biggest thing that we face, are, it's a it's a two-faceted approach, I think, when I when I read when I'm reading the book here and then what I'm seeing happen around us. So one is you go to any social media page and there's people out there that talk about stuff they don't know anything about, right? They they everyone's a an agricultural genius when they get on internet, whether they've even been on a farm or not or understand how any of this stuff even is produced. So great example, a uh, week or two ago, well, yeah, a week ago, I guess, there was a, a retweet by one of the someone I followed that had said something to the effect of, of they were talking about the dairy market and how n- at no time in human existence until now was dairy ever part of the human diet. And that, that is the most, that's the furthest thing from the truth. I mean, p- humans have been drinking milk from goats and sheep and cows and wherever else they can get it since they figured out they could get it. And so that's been a, that's been a part of the human diet for the last, 10,000 years, probably. Absolutely. Um, and, and you know, uh, there's, there's a big study about that whole thing. Is Absolutely. And, you know, the human brain, uh, you know, because of our ability to get more protein through uh, livestock and milk, mm-hmm. uh, our brains are bigger and more developed. So, yeah, people say a lot of outlandish stuff. And there's no question that, uh, as I point out in my book, this idea that uh, humans are the only species that drink another animal's milk, a chimpanzee will eat drink all the milk I can. My dogs right. love milk. It's just that they didn't have opposable digits and uh, brains like humans can figure out right. a way to domesticate cows and then put milkers on them. Right. And that's, yeah. So, I mean, I think the biggest thing we have faced in our industry as a whole is, as you know, you like you said earlier, we just go out and educate, to educate people. I, I think the biggest fear, the thing we have is the amount of people out there that are putting out information that they don't understand. You know what I mean? They, they have, they read something someplace and then all of a sudden, you know, the paleo diet is, is God's gift to humanity. And, and, you know, we go back and eat. Yeah. Well, I can tell you that what, what, uh, and I, the internet didn't make anybody necessarily smarter. It made it so that a lot of misinformation can move at the speed of light. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and in our industry, you know, food, as I point out in my book, food fear used to just be a matter of just trying to get some in your belly so you could live. And right. when it's in surplus and when we're in an affluent society such as the United States, it becomes a political statement, a social statement, a religious type of movement. Um, now it's that I'm going to prove that I care more by not drinking milk because of those poor dairy cows, because I saw something on the internet that they they're forcibly raped, and yes, I have read that. I have read I have read these excerpts by these animal rights wackos that cows are forcibly raped. They're babies. They use the word babies because it humanizes it. They don't use the word calf. Babies are stolen from them so that you can drink milk, which is killing you with heart disease, which is not true. And no human should ever drink another species milk. No, because no other species does that. Like, again, my dogs do, but they just aren't smart enough to figure out how to create the De Laval company with bulk tanks and milkers. Also, I should also point out, if we're going to keep saying what humans do that other species don't, besides drinking milk, Casey, 
we also fly in outer space. We drive automobiles. We use the internet. <clears throat> we created the computer and we have sex just for pleasure rather than reproduction only. So I think that there's a lot of things humans do that are okay. Yeah. I would agree with all that. Yeah. There's a, uh, that, that movement out there right now, uh, is, is the only thing that I worry about is that, like you said, the, the political, the politicalization of, uh, of food is, is something you don't hear in, uh, Africa, for example, there are a bunch of people jumping up and down screaming and yelling about GMOs or anything else out there. They're, they're looking for the next, next meal to eat. And that's, that is, uh, that is something that we are as humans trying or as uh, what we do in the United States. That's why we are a superpower. You know, it's, our agricultural base has given us the ability to go out and, you know, the amount of grain that we supply the world is and the amount of grain that we actually use in the United States for domestic use is such a small percentage of what we actually use compared to what we export. Um, we could, uh, we could live just fine on, on growing what we grow and doing what we do. So, um, yeah. And you know, what we're talking about here is, and this is a, a something that you and I, while we're agriculturally proud, we also are maybe sometimes more in, uh, in the basis of reality than some of our agricultural friends. It is the reality of the marketplace that, uh, we are so productive that the, the consumer can bitch about what we produce. Um, but you know, that still gives us a lot of opportunity, you know, as much as we bother, we we're bothered by that sometimes Casey, it also gives us a chance to upsell. We can, we can then make a lot more margin on ridiculous products in a marketplace that the basics are handled. Uh, there's a lot of room for profit margin. Um, so that's, that's one reality. You You asked about the motivation for me to write the book. It was to, to put out real information, to put out commentary. Uh, and like I said, I wrote it for both bases, the people like you and me that are in the business, the people that I live with part of the year in Arizona in the suburbs that I'll bump into at some event and say, hey, like they said, you're a farm guy. Yeah, yeah I'm a farm guy. Uh, like, is it true that? And then they just come up with some outlandish stuff, you know, that, uh, that these beef companies are poisoning us. And I'm like, oh, God, you know, <laughs> so right. that's that's the thing. It's uh, it's kind of good for some straight dialogue. And we would probably end up being a little less defensive. And then the other thing that we should probably do in agriculture is illustrate. And this is where we fight poorly. You know, I always say that in one of my chapters in there is that we're taking a pitchfork to a gunfight. Ag people fight poorly. Um, we, we're just terrible at it. Um, if it were me, I would just continually, as an industry, spend all of my money running ad campaigns saying, these lunatics over here at PETA want to take uh, your leather shoes away from you and remove your choice of food so you can't have eggs when you want eggs. Instead of us fighting PETA, let our consumers do it for us. Um, you know, I would point out that all these activist groups are actually fundraising groups. They are they exist as not-for-profits, but really, when they just say, uh, put out some salacious headline that, uh, you know, agriculture is killing you and all that, they do that because then they get fundraising monies to come in and then they just, that's their job. So I think we should fight better. Agreed. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that stuff going on. So the other thing in your book that I like, and I'm, I'm really, this is my favorite thing to talk about and I'm working my way to that, but you have a section on the future and, and what that looks like. I am a, uh, I'm a firm believer in that, that the, the U S uh, farmer in, in 10 years will look completely different than they look now. Shocker. I'm really, 
really setting the stage there, really set myself up to be a genius there. But um, what I think is going to happen is that there's going to be more and more um, growth for transparency and, and what that means and what that looks like. And um, I think that the, uh, the open market, as far as the open commodity market is going to be a, a, a kind of a, a, a resort of last choice, not the first choice to think about. I think there's going to be more, um, uh, contracts direct from, from the farm to a, like a general mills or somebody like that, that, that where they're going to have, if you can do X, Y, and Z, and you can show me that you're doing X, Y, and Z, um, I'll buy your whatever for $3 more than what you get to on the open market. Um, I think that's going to be the next next phase of farming, and that's how we're going to start seeing the profitable farmer come back, and not just playing the the, the commodity casino out there and, and 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 betting on the weather and those kind of things. What are your thoughts about that? And, and have you had those conversations with with producers uh, um, in your in your years doing this? Somewhat, producers tend to not be as um, ad- adaptive uh, in in terms of not adaptive. That's the wrong word. Um, as embracing uh, of of that, um, I said in one of my chapters, I say is contractual production the future of agriculture. In many ways, it is. It'll probably be like you said for a couple reasons. On the one hand, it's going to be that way on commodity production. We went that way in poultry. When I was a little boy, there were still independent poultry producers and egg producers. There's not any more. They're all on a contractual arrangement with the Tysons or the, you know, you know whatever. Um, you just, you get paid to grow birds for this large con- company and it removes the, the cyclical risk for the producer that can be out there on the farm. Pork went to seven cents a pound in like the year 2000, I'm sorry, 1997. And so you couldn't even justify trucking your hogs to market uh, based on the price. Uh, so pork is now essentially all vertically integrated and on a contractual production arrangement. Well, if it's happening in poultry and pork, and then you've got products like potatoes, uh, where you grow them and more and more, it's going to be just because of risk and volatility, uh, mitigation. However, as you pointed out, it's going to be more that way on quality. Now there are going to be people that picker and bicker and they'll say, wait a minute, you're saying I don't produce something of quality? No, no. I'm saying that you can absolutely guarantee quality or consistency. Take pork. Pork, they basically say, we're going to get these 280-pound pigs that come in. They are pretty much, there's not a whole hell of a lot of difference from this pig to this pig to this pig. Um, that's going to probably end up happening more and more where it's like they can absolutely guarantee what the thing looks like, what it's characteristics are and as you said then it'll be source verified now all those people that say in consumerville i want to know where my food comes from now absolutely you say we're general mills we've got this product and uh, it's called kernza which is a perennial wheat it's better for the environment and we're now we've experimented with it in the plain states and now farmer bob and cindy uh, grow all of the Kernza, uh, you know, that comes in here, or not Barb and you know, then people like Bob and Cindy, and you can verify this. So it'll be on a contract to re- remove the volatility. It'll be uh, on an arrangement where then they can fix the absolute type of Kernza and the quality and then the timing and all that stuff. So I'd say that that is absolutely what's going to happen rather than just, hey, we produce some stuff out here. Anybody want it? <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's probably right. Yeah, I think it's going to be I think the open market's going to be more towards the developing countries that are don't have the infrastructure yet that that we see in the United States, so Africa and, and Eastern Europe and, and um 
you know, in those areas where they're just growing masks just for, just to feed people and just to grow stuff. If you want something that's fits in this perfect little box, the organic thing or whatever it is, I think that's what you're going to see here in the U S as, as things start to, to change. Yeah. It'll happen on the value added side for sure. But you know, right. like I said, it happened on a contractual arrangement it happened on things like poultry and pork, just because of the economics of necessity. Uh, after a bunch of people get washed out, they're going to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to build $3 million with a hog barns and then potentially lose them. So it could even happen on the commodity side. But yes, it's hard for folks right now to even get their hands around the idea that corn and soybeans and wheat, for instance, would be any way different than they are right now, where you just plant them, go out on the futures market, sell them, whatever. All right. So I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about some agricultural equipment here on the Moving Iron Podcast. So as I, uh, read through your book here and saw some stuff. You just had some stuff on, on autonomy and, and technology and how that's going to play into uh, what we see happening out there right now. Equipment is, I firmly believe it's as big as it can get. I don't, I don't know how else it could get any bigger just from the sheer fact of not so much the weight, which is an issue, but just the overall size of stuff driving down the road. Um, I think as autonomy plays in and starts to, uh, to come in and there's, there's multiple machines out there and, and there's not the need for, um, seven people driving seven equ- pieces of equipment and you know one person controlling seven different pieces of equipment out in the field uh, they'll get smaller and uh, you and I had a pretty good conversation about that uh, in October at last year's moving iron summit um, over a couple of beers um, I guess what's your thoughts on that and kind of give me your two cents on on the size of equipment the the structure and scale of equipment and and what you see happening out there yeah, and I'm bearing in mind that the people that listen to Moving Iron uh, podcast know more about machinery than me. So by all means, the people listening to the Moving Iron Summit are experts on machinery more than I am. I get that. Uh, but I've been around this industry for a long time, and I, I you know, I try to be broad-based and also do my research, which you missed the opportunity there, Mr. Seymour, to tell these people that in my new book, Food Fear, you are referenced twice on page 140, talking about dollars in those fields because expensive machinery is very, very expensive. And then on uh, page 167, where we talk about Ukraine, because you have been to Ukraine and I have not, so you gave me a description. Machinery is going to get smaller for the first time that anyone can ever remember. Since the first machines uh, you know, came out the door, they've gotten bigger, right? Right. Um, you and I can go to the Indiana State Fair, my home state, or uh, say Nebraska State Fair where you live, and you can go through, they'll have an old exhibit of old machinery, and it's pretty small stuff. Uh, you know, the the, the Farmall M and the, uh, the, the International 806 uh, from the 1960s, and, you know, even the John Deere 40, the venerable John Deere 4020, which is amazing to me. Again, you people that you John Deere people that like pee, your pee comes out green and yellow. I got to tell you, man, uh, the John Deere 4020 is like, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, I, they should basically just still roll out a couple every year. In fact, I think they do. I think they still make some. And then because there's always somebody that claims to find one in a barn sometime. Like, how the hell are these things still around? I think that John Deere has a secret plant somewhere and they still produce about 500 John Deere 4020s per year. And then like somebody sticks them in their barn for about three months and then get, lets it get dusty and says, Hey, look at this. What I just found. Anyway, machinery has always gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. You and I both know it. So the reason it's got to get smaller 
is because it can't possibly get any bigger. It really can't. It can't fit down the road. You you can't hardly put it on a semi and even get it delivered somewhere. The bridge in front of my, they're redoing some of the culverts and bridges on the state highway in front of my farm in Indiana. And uh, the paperwork I got said, nothing's been done to this since 1960. In 1960, if you were driving uh, your basic uh, combine over that uh, bridge in the, in rural Indiana, it probably weighed a couple of tons. Now you've got machines that weigh like 30 tons. Right. Uh, yeah. So it can't get any bigger. We're squishing our soil with this huge machinery. Oh, they got big floater tires. If you take 30 tons and float it out over uh, a four foot wide tire, you still are squishing the soil <laughs> because let's face it, a lady in high heels can go out and pack down the soil because it's pounds per square inch. Machinery is going to get autonomous also because it can become smaller. It can become more user-friendly. Uh, labor is an issue out here in these rural areas. Now, the media will put out this ridiculous notion that these factory farms are hiring these poor Mexicans for like $1 an hour. Well, that's not true at all because that, that, um, that worker can go and hang drywall. That worker can go and do a lot of things. But what if it's that you only need machinery to run for about four weeks in the spring and four weeks in the fall, which is pretty accurate, right? Two to three weeks even sometimes uh, in the spring and fall. Are you going to call up the temp agency in Omaha and say, hey, I'm out here in west central Nebraska. I'm out here in, uh, I'm out here in the hinterlands. I need four people for about three weeks. Okay, well, we've got a person here that uh, they know how to, well, they... They know how to flip burgers. Okay, send them out. I'm going to put them in a half million dollar combine. <laughs> right. Yeah. So autonomous machinery removes the need for seasonal or really, really, it's barely even seasonal. I mean, it's really only like a couple of months uh, uh, labor. So I think autonomous machinery is absolutely going to happen. And also machinery is going to get smaller for the reasons we mentioned. It might actually, it might actually end up being a democratization effect because Right now, your biggest customers can buy six of the most expensive big combines. And if I'm just a guy with uh, 3,000 acres, I'm a little bit sized out. I might have actually an opportunity with autonomous machinery to, uh, to still exist as a smaller operator. I think there's probably some, there's some truth to that. I think as uh, the, the size and scale and scope that we see of farming operations now, We'll continue to grow. It's not a big shock to anybody, but I think it's going to be more um, amplified over the next this next generational change that we see happening. I, re- I I talk about it a lot, where I think we're at a kind of a, a generational crossroads. You know, um, Grandpa's still around. Dad's tr- hopefully taken over the farm, but when Grandpa actually dies, Dad might be pretty close to retirement. You know what I mean? When Grandpa's eighty years old, and yep. Dad's fifty-five years old or sixty years old or something like that this next generation comes actually the one that's going to be taking over the, the full scale farm operation. And, and what the diff I've always said, there's a, uh, the, the technological gap between grandpa and dad was nothing compared to what it was between dad and son. Yeah. And it's, it's every year something new comes out. That's whether well, it's drone technology, that's using infrared cameras to see, heat signatures inside the, of a corn plant. That way you can see where disease is developing or you can see bugs on the, the leaves or whatever it is that's, that's going on out there. I mean, there's so much technology out there, so many things that you can do to really drive that precision ag side of the business that, that things are more efficient. They're creating more uh, bushels per acre than they did 10 years ago. They're doing things that 
for less money, you know, and, and doing those different things that are out there. So I'm, uh, for those folks that are listening to this, that, that haven't listened before and you're, uh, you're, uh, uh, a commodity trader someplace or an investment banker somewhere that listens to this. I'm telling you right now that there's, there's nothing on the face of the earth that is as a technologically advanced industry wise as, as farming is. And, uh, the things that we're doing and the things that we're, we're putting out in front of you in front of our customers, even amaze me sometimes, you know, we got combines that set themselves so you can go get the guy that flips burgers at the temp, temp station, throw them inside the, the combine and all he has to know is what button to push when and then the combine does it all for him from there so yeah, yeah. I mean, well, how, like that, how long you know? is it until how long is it until that we don't even need the person in there and yeah. uh that's that's probably coming there's there's so much as you said technological then it becomes this issue of <clears throat> this you know we still pride ourselves on uh this whole thing that these farmers are out there working hard uh, and, and I make the point about, you know, uh, I've got plenty of my farmer friends that they, they could stand to go to the gym because, uh, they still eat like they're going out and, uh, shoveling, uh, shoveling out, uh, grain bins every day and throwing around small bales of hay. When in reality for 30 years, they haven't touched a scoop shovel or a, a, certainly not a small bale of hay. Um, and when you sit in a combine and, and push a joystick, uh, or sit at your, your desk and handle your computer, you, um, you're not really doing a lot of physical labor. Now, there are still a lot of physical labor jobs, livestock, produce, specialty crops, et cetera. The pace of innovation, certainly. But when does it get to where um, <clears throat> when we see outside investors? You know, And this has been something we've always resisted. And I don't even talk about this in the book. I think this is the, the, the next book I need to come out with. But this whole thing, this thing about family farms, family farms, family farms. When does it become the idea of, well, there also used to be family uh, coffee shop and now there's Starbucks and everybody's fine with that. The pace of innovation is also going to bring the amount of, uh, now it becomes a matter of so much money. In other words, I could be a 20,000 acre operator using technology. Is that where we go? Mm, maybe, maybe, uh, probably to a certain degree, but I'm, I'm saying that what's going to happen in the more immediate term, we're going to have half the number of farmers 10 years from now that we have right now. And it's because, not because anybody did anything mean, it's because it just can be. Uh, yeah. You know, you've got stuff that can, can make it so that you don't have to have as many people doing the work. I think, I think the future is, uh, is going to be a, a complete polarizing change from what we've we've ever seen the rapid growth that we see is going to be uh technologically driven and those that stay efficient will be the ones that that uh that that grow and, and continue to uh continue to grow what they've got going on so i think that they need to get really good at managing money you know that's one thing that i think the farmer of the future needs to be casey is um the stay in the shop and replace disc blades person, um, that's not what the future is going to benefit. Um, you know, that's just, uh, you and I both know there's operators that want to do that. And I don't know that that's what the future looks like. I think the future operator is going to be really good at um, managing money and uh, putting folks like you in one role and saying, hey, you're just going to be my equipment guy. Uh, hey, you're going to be my fight. Uh, you're going to be my, uh, my my technology girl, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. So there's going to be more of that probably moving forward. Still optimistic about the business because remember, there's another side of it <clears throat> where there's the small and the niche. And we just see more and more of that every day. 
Generation Z thinks that food needs to be as personalized to them as their cell phone applications are. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, good stuff, Damien. Man, we got you've got a great book here, and um, I look forward to finishing it. And uh, as always, it's been a it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. You got any final thoughts you want to throw out there before we uh, shut this thing down? Well, of course, tell tell our friends here on the Moving Iron Podcast, if they want to pick up Food Fear, again, you can do that at DamianMason.com, page number 140 and page number 167. You'll see your man Casey Seymour gets mentioned. Cover a lot of ground from everything from equipment to to the future to the fights and the politicization of food to, uh, like you said, you love talking about the future. And I paint a few different pictures here uh, of where there's real, real uh, changes going on, one of them being uh, <clears throat> marginal land. You know, uh, if we get to where we're so darn productive based on everything you and I have talked about on our good land, why are we going to fool around with marginal land? Right. So we're going to see a continual, I mean, we CRP has taken, what, 33 million acres or something away. We're going to see that much again in the next 10 years. And if the government doesn't pay you to do it, it's going to happen anyhow, because it just won't make sense to go out there and piddle around with, uh, you know, crop ground that doesn't produce uh, nearly as much. So I think that's going to be a real change also. Our our nature uh, in the country is going to get better than it's uh, been in years and years. Yep. Yeah. I'm from, yeah, great point. Conservation is a, uh, is a big thing. And, and uh, there's not a farmer on the planet that wants to destroy the land they farm so they can't farm it again. So anyone that, that believes that's a, a complete moron. So, um, I guess that's a good place to stop, Damon. Shock the world there a little bit. So, <laughs> I believe that's a complete moron. <laughs> that's why he's winning friends and influencing people right here on the Moving Iron Podcast. That's right. That is exactly right. So, give out your uh, website one more time where they can find the book. DamianMason.com. D A M I A N. Damian Mason, like a bricklayer. Thank you very much for having me on here. No problem. And I am Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. You can check the podcast out at iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, any place you can find a podcast. Uh, check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Also check out the globalagnetwork.com for all the other great podcasters that are out there. And uh, I guess with that, I'm Casey Seaman with Damien Mason. Let's go move some iron, folks. Out. Cool. Moving iron in the 21st century.